Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. And uh, our topic today, as you have noticed, is, can, is entitled The Three Crosses of Calvary. How they involve every man. How they involve you and me. And now, I, by way of introduction, let's turn, if you will, to St. John, the 19th chapter, and verse 15. And here we have a part of the count of the account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and of course the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus is inexhaustible as you know. We'll be able to study it forever, preach on it forever. And here in this 19th chapter, and now notice the 15th verse to the 18th. But they cried out, <clears throat> away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Jesus in the midst. He was crucified in the midst of malefactors, in the midst of criminals. And you know, Jesus Christ, in all of his earthly mission, he was always amid humanity, wasn't he? He was. In his birth, he was born in the midst of men, <clears throat> the same as every other babe is born into this world. So he was born, born of a woman, made under the law, as the apostle declares. And in his nature, which he, that he inherited from that woman, a fallen nature like our nature. For God, it says, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And you know what the rest of it says, how it goes. That's how he was born, amid men. And in his earthly existence... Throughout his life, he was in the midst of men. Most men in this world are of the working class. Is that right? Most men. So was Jesus. He was of the working class. Most men in this world are of the poorer class. So was Jesus. He was poor. His family that it was that of a poor carpenter struggling for existence. He knew what it meant to be poor and to, and to be in need. And Jesus' life was amid poverty. And remember, the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet... For your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty may be rich. So you see, 
He was amidst men, amidst humanity, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to his death, or came to his death, he surely was one with humanity. For he was crucified between two criminals. He was condemned to die amid dying men. He was condemned to die amid condemned men. And here we have a picture of all humanity, of all, of all men right here. Two criminals representing the whole race. For remember what it say? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. These two, beside the Lord Jesus Christ, represent every man upon the face of the earth for all time. All of us are under sentence like they were. Under sentence. For remember it says in Romans, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. For that or because all men have sinned. So there we have that picture of the human race. All have sinned. And uh, Jesus... In his death, not only died amid men, but he died as the chief of criminals, as we know. For the location of the crosses was especially done, deliberately done, to indicate that he was the central criminal. He was the chief criminal, you see. That's how he was portrayed. So Jesus died not in a palace, he didn't even die in a bed, and yet he was the king of glory. It's astounding, isn't it? You know, I can imagine the consternation of the unfallen universe who were gazing at the scene. The whole universe was gazing, probably with bated breath, at the scene, and here they witness their beloved commander being rejected by the race that he came to save. And like the thieves, Jesus was rejected by society of his day. The thieves, remember, were being pushed out of the world. They were considered unfit for society. And so it was with Jesus. He wasn't wanted. He wasn't wanted. It's astounding, isn't it? He wasn't wanted. He was, he was rejected publicly and officially by his nation. For he came to his own, and his own received him not. What a statement. A fearful rejection. The king of heaven came to those that he himself had created to save them. But he was rejected, rejected of men. But not only did they reject him, they abused him. Another astonishing thing. It was a public and an official rejection. But the abuse that they heaped upon him was extraordinary. 
At Calvary was exhibited an avalanche of hatred that maybe has never been witnessed before or since. And this is very significant, and we need to take note of it. The ferocious outburst of hate against Jesus on the cross involved every class that surrounded that that cross, every class. Very significant. And when we study the classes, the, the picture of the cross, we find there are four classes brought to view. Four denoting universality, denoting the world, denoting the whole of mankind. And the, those four classes represent the whole race in their attitude toward the Son of God. And it's very significant. When we read Mark, the 15th chapter, we find these four four classes. First of all, there were those that passed by, the man in the street, the common people. Secondly, we find the chief priests and the scribes, also spoken of as the elders and the rulers. These were the religious leaders, the administrators, the intellectuals. That's the second class. The third class is the criminal class, the lawbreakers, the two thieves on the cross that railed on him. And finally, the military the soldiers who, remember, also reviled him. And it says the people stood beholding. It's astonishing. They stood beholding. There was something that gripped those people, gripped them. What was it that gripped them? What was the attraction? What was it that drew the people, even those who hated to him? Remember Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, speaking of crucifixion, if I be lifted up will draw, what's it say? All men unto me. And he does. In one way or another, he does. And even in his crucifixion, even in this appalling death, with this, the appalling appearance of this figure, The magnificence of his character could not be obscured. It shone through. Marvellous. Marvellous. Now let's notice the form of the abuse. The form. What kind of abuse was it? First, let's notice the common people. According to Matthew 27, 39 on, here they began to deride him, the common people. Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. Can you imagine them? As they passed by, they flung their ridicule at him. And this was a repetition of the false charge, remember, by that false witness before the Sanhedrin, according to verse 26 of that chapter. They twisted the prediction that Jesus had made, as recorded in John 2, remember. Twisted it, perverted it. And verse 40, they say, And if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. This is very significant also. Matthew 15, 30 says, Save thyself and come down from the cross. This was the repeating call, challenge to Jesus on the cross. If you be the Messiah, save yourself. 
prove it. And then we should ask the question, could Jesus have come down and saved himself? Yes, he could have. Yes, he could have come down. He could have exerted his divinity, his deity, and saved himself. Of course he could have. But it would have meant the destruction of the race. There would be no salvation. And now we come to the second class and how they abuse him. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the rulers. Matthew 27, 41 says, he gives their words, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Can you imagine it? But how true it was. A profound truth. If he were to save the world, he could not save himself. Profound truth, but little did they dream it. Luke twenty three thirty five. He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the son of the chosen of God. Could he do both? No, he couldn't. He could not do both. Matthew twenty seven again. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we'll believe him. And Mark 15 says, let Christ, meaning the Messiah, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Remember this was flung at Jesus as he hung there in his humiliation. And finally, Matthew 27, 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. What a taunt. What a taunt. Next we come to the soldiers, the military. Luke 23, 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, and offering him vinegar, saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save yourself. Interesting. Every class has the same theme, the same theme. And now we come to the criminals, the criminal class, Matthew 27, 44. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth, the same as what the others were saying, the same demands as that of the priests and rulers and the common people, etc. And Mark 15, 32 and they that were crucified with him reviled him. Reviled him. You know, friends, this was unnatural abuse. This was an unnatural reaction. Generally, generally, when one is dying, there at least there is at least at least a little respect, even for one's enemy. But not so with this man. At Calvary, all four classes unite upon this man who went about doing good. Always doing good. Each demand from each class was for Jesus, if he were the Messiah, to save himself and descend from the cross. What's the significance of this? Why this concerted cry? My friends, undoubtedly it was inspired from one single source. 
And what source was that? From Lucifer, of course. Lucifer! But why would Lucifer do this? My friends here at this place at Calvary, there climaxed the great controversy between good and evil, between Christ and Satan. Here Lucifer believed was the place, was the time when he could defeat the Son of God. So far he had been defeated, he had lost, but now he believed this was the time when he could defeat him. And so all the powers of hell were assembled to shatter the plan of salvation. And while Jesus was in the most vulnerable condition, physically and nervously weakened, racked by piercing pain, not only physical but, as we know, mental, mental conflict, the comforting, assuring presence of this Holy Spirit of God was withdrawing from him. Remember, mental darkness was enveloping his mind. Hope was leaving him. And here now that devil comes with his deadly attacks. I tell you, my friends, the plan of salvation trembled in the balance at this time. He assailed Jesus with suggestions of deadly doubt. Deadly doubt. He pummeled his mind with thoughts of finding relief. We can all understand that. For when we're in pain, severe pain, the natural, the natural reaction is relief, to find relief. And Jesus experienced that. And so Satan sought to lure Jesus, you see, into exercising his deity to obtain relief. He sought to lure him to do this. And he summoned to his aid all those four classes surrounding the cross and inspired them to assail his mind. Save yourself! Come down from the cross! That's what Satan's plan was, to try and lead Jesus to save himself. If he had done that, the plan of salvation would, be, would have been destroyed. And you can imagine how the plan was in the balance. The human, the, the, the unfallen universe must have been watching with bated breath. They must have been watching with bated breath. And remember, friends, when Jesus entered into this final battle, he made this exclamation, remember, as found in John 14, 13. He says, the prince of this world comes. He knew what a battle would be. He said, the prince of this world cometh, and what next? Hath nothing in me. Now, this is a magnificent statement, a very significant statement. Hath nothing in me. What did he mean by that? Satan found nothing in Jesus by which he could lure him to defeat. Nothing. Marvellous. There wasn't a single defect in his character where he could attack him. 
There wasn't a negative thought in his mind by which he could gain entrance. He hath nothing in me. There wasn't a single chink in Christ's spiritual armor. Not a single chink. He hath nothing in me. And here we have a revelation, my friends, of the vital necessity of the sinless life of Jesus in the plan of salvation. Have we not? Yeah, that's one of the essentials in the ministry of Christ in regard to salvation, his sinless life. And here we have, here we see, we get a glimpse of how essential it was, you see. And so Jesus here fights this battle, this furious battle. And he fights it all alone. All alone. Not a single soul expressed a word of sympathy for him. Not a single word. And remember the prophet had said, had given the words of the Messiah 700 years before. I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. None with him. Not a single comforter. He trod the winepress alone. And now we find, we see a sudden change in the scene. A sudden change in Calvary's scene. Luke 23, 39 declares, And one of the malefactors railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. In his agony, you see, he was getting desperate. Save thyself and us if you be the Christ, if you be Messiah. Only one. Something has happened. The other one is silent. Something's happened here. He realizes something the first one has missed. His attitude has altered. He takes a different stance now toward Jesus. And here, my friends at Calvary, in the three crosses, we have brought to view three different characters. Three men on three crosses portraying the history and the destiny of all mankind, of you and me, of every man. And the first cross, and no doubt you've heard this before, this is not new, this is not my, my a result of my study, but the first cross is uh, called by scholars by Bible students, by believers, the cross of redemption. That's what this is called, the cross of redemption. And my friends, what a cross this is. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption, through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. The cross of redemption. 1 Peter 1.18, you were redeemed. Redemption with the precious blood of Christ. And Revelation 5, 9, Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. This is the cross of redemption. And the condition of the three men here is very significant. Two had sin in them. One had sin on him. Is that very different? 
It certainly is. Jesus was the substitute for sin, as we all know. He was the sin bearer. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away, or the Greek has it, that beareth the sin of the world. He was the sin bearer who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. The Lord hath laid on him, what's it say? The iniquity of us all. He was the sin bearer. This is the cross of redemption. The guilt of the entire race was laid on this man. The entire race. He tasted death for every man. And brethren, we're coming now to something we will never comprehend. He is the propitiation or expiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I tell you what is involved in that, the guilt of the whole world for all time. And this explains why the sufferings of Jesus were so vastly different from all other sufferings. His sufferings were infinite. Infinite. If we can comprehend the significance of that word, this is why no man no angel, no creature could possibly atone for sin. The only atonement that could be made was by someone who could suffer infinitely. Infinitely. And the only life that could substitute for guilty man, for the guilty race, was the life of the Creator. The life of the Creator. Infinite life covering all men for all eternity. That's what was essential. And this demanded the life of the Creator. Which Creator? God the Son. God the Son. And remember what it says, John 1, for in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. In Him was life. And it was this life that had to be sacrificed for guilty man to make atonement. The spirit of prophecy says in Christ is life. Original, unborrowed, underived. That life in the Son was infinite life. The life of the deity. And that, was the, that is the life that, that was essential. 1 John 1, 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. When they saw that person, they saw eternal life. That's what they saw, eternal life. They handled it. Eternal life, you see. And uh, that's the life that was essential for atonement. And so to die as a substitute 
it was essential then for the Creator to assume a special form. Why a special form? Because he had to suffer death. And in his divine form, as deity, that was impossible. Can deity die? No, it cannot die. And this leads us to the main, the chief, the basic reason for the incarnation and for Jesus assuming fallen nature. For notice what it says. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also took part of the same. Now what's it say next? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. My friends, he had to take a nature that was subject to death. Let me ask you, Adam, before he sinned, was he subject to death? No. This sinless nature is not subject to death. And here's the basic reason. The basic reason why Jesus, it was essential, he take on the fallen nature of the human race in order to die, to atone, to substitute, to suffer infinitely for the guilty race. And Jesus in this provided salvation for the whole race. And my friends, here is where Calvinism, which you know about, in some of its aspects falls to the ground. Sadly, falls to the ground. Because remember, the greatest scripture says that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That common, that beautiful, that most popular text tells us that whosoever may believe, not just a certain class predestined to eternal life, but whosoever. Calvinism crashes at this point. It, it claims Christ's atonement was for only those predestined to life, as you know. Nine times, at least in Scripture, it tells us that Jesus' atonement was for the whole race. Listen to this. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The world. Not that the world would be saved, but he made provision for the whole world. 1 Timothy 4.10, he is the saviour of all men. 1 Timothy 2.6, he gave himself a ransom for some. For all, for all. Yeah, the grace of God hath appeared to all men. Not willing, 2 Peter 3.9, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. My friends, if God could bring it about, he would accept the whole human race if it repented. Would he? He surely would. For he loves the race, remember. He created the race. He loves the race. And he would, he would save the whole race if it repented. 1 Timothy 2.4 Who will have all men to be saved... 
Not that they will be. But God would love to save the whole race. And so, my friends, here we have infinite suffering, infinite provision, a provision beyond our comprehension. And this is what was involved in this cross of redemption. That's what was involved. And, of course, we only touch the outskirts of it were of it as it were and now this leads us to the central cross the second cross pardon me and the cent- the central cross or perhaps we should put here and this cross that he died for sin and in doing that he was the savior and now we come to the next cross the second cross and this is the cross of the man who continued to revile the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the opposite to redemption. He defied Jesus. Jesus was close beside him, but he refused to recognize him for what he really was. He knew about the Messiah because, remember, he said, if you be Christ, if you be Messiah, save us. He knew Messiah could save or would save. He knew that. He knew that. But he believed in salvation by escape from the cross. For he should come down from the cross. Save us if you be the Messiah. That's what he believed. And he represents millions of men, millions of people who believe in escape from the cross, who believe in human effort, who believe in a salvation that involves maybe politics or armed force, compulsion, power. And the great majority of mankind come under that caption. The great majority. He represents millions of men who, like him, are dying in sin but reject the shed blood of Christ. They reject Jesus as the great substitute. Christendom today is permeated with this philosophy as we know. Permeated with it. Sin is psychological imbalance. And what is needed, they believe, is a social gospel. Education. A changed environment. And many other things which you know of. You remember, perhaps you've heard the story of the new minister who came to a church. To a church. And this was a very fashionable church. I understand it was in England. Very fashionable church. And in it were a lot of professionals. And his first sermon was on the crucifixion. And after the sermon, when he was talking with uh, some of his parishioners, there came up to him one of the leaders of the congregation. He was a lawyer. And uh, he said to me, you know, uh, he began, he complimented him on his sermon, but he said, you know, we uh, in this church, he said, we prefer to hear about Jesus Christ as the great philosopher, the great teacher, the great exemplar, he said, uh, we don't like to hear uh, what you presented today, the blood and um, the negative things that you brought to view. And the minister thought for a moment and he said to him, well, you are prepared to accept uh, Jesus Christ then as, as your example. 
Oh, yes, he said. Oh, yes. Well, he said, you know, it says he did no sin. Are you prepared to accept that as your example? The lawyer walked away. Why? Because every single person needs a saviour. He needs someone who dies in his stead. He needs a substitute. There's no escape from the blood. No escape. We must have the blood. And so this is the cross of rejection. God must sacrifice himself. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But this man, dying in sin, dying without hope, and yet the Redeemer was right beside him. Right beside him. What a tragedy. Sin's remedy was so close and yet so far away. And this is typical of the great majority of the race. They live and die as if there was no gospel, as if no one had ever made any provision. Isn't that right? It is. That's how it is. And so this is the cross of rejection. Of rejection. This man died in sin. Tragic. In sin. He died a sinner. A sinner. Tragic. And you know, Jesus had not a single word for this man. Not one ray of hope, not one note of comfort. And this applies to everyone who ignores the blood, who ignores Christ as substitute. For remember, it says, Of how much sore a punishment shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the blood of the Son of God and hath counted or rather and hath despised the spirit of God of how much sore a punishment the cost the provision made by heaven has been so costly so enormous in its price that God cannot pass by the one who deliberately rejects it in justice he must not pass it by and so the warning is of how much sore punishment shall he be thought worthy. What a warning. So now this bring, we come to the third cross. And the third cross, remember, this man railed on Jesus at the beginning. He railed on him like the other thief in his agony. But then there came the dramatic change. Why the change? The spirit of prophecy gives us, throws light on this. And the spirit of prophecy tells us he wasn't a hardened criminal. He'd been led astray by the priests. As a boy, he had made a good start in the Jewish religion. He had seen and heard Jesus. He would, had been convicted that Jesus was the Messiah, but he'd been turned away by the religious leaders. And he finally plunged into crime, was arrested and condemned. And here now he is. He had been taken with Jesus from the judgment hall to Calvary. He had accompanied Jesus to Golgotha and as he did, he marked the serenity of Jesus. 
the serene spirit of this man. His godlike bearing. He heard him turn, he saw him turn to the women who were weeping, remember. And he heard the prediction, women, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. That prophecy, remember, that came so true in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then, as he witnessed the deep compassion of Jesus and his love, even in his awful agony, remember as they were plunging the nails into his flesh, the normal reaction was to curse and swear. But instead, he uttered his prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The prayer for his executioners. And while in his awful agony he turned on Jesus, he took it out on Jesus, conviction came upon him. Conviction that this man beside him was the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ. And, of course, this man now was facing eternity. He was about to die, and he was unready. A greater tribunal was before him, and in his awful need he now turns to the Christ, and he yields. He declares his feelings. He confesses and indicates his repentance. And remember he said, just to the other thief as he swore at Jesus and abused him still, dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we justly? For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And then remember he calls on Jesus. And he says to him in these famous words as which we all with which we're all familiar, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Oh, what a contrast. This was the only word of hope and comfort that Jesus received in his awful hour. The only comfort. And you know it's astonishing. Jesus must have looked terrible, smeared with blood. As the prophet had said, we turned our faces, as it were, from him because of his ghastly appearance. And it must have been. But this man saw in that ghastly figure the Messiah. He saw in him the king. The king, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Astonishing. And brethren, it's the same with you and me. We are to see in the blood-soaked Jesus, the Savior, the King, the Lord. That's what we're to, that's what we're to see. But wasn't it too late for this man? Wasn't it too late? He had nothing to recommend him. He had no money. He had no reputation. He had no friends. He had no influence whatsoever. He had nothing. His hope, his situation was hopeless. 
just like all other men, just like you and just like me. In our natural situation, as far as God is concerned, it is hopeless. A hopeless situation. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Hopeless. But what was the response? Jesus responded to him as he will to everyone who turns to him in repentance. And from lips swollen, from a mouth that the tongue had swollen with the dire thirst, in awful pain, he speaks those precious words to that single man. Marvellous. Though he was crucified, though he was in such an awful situation, he could still save. He could still save. His hands were nailed, his feet were spiked, his mass was a his body was a mass of bloodied flesh through the scourging. His head was wounded with the thorny crown, but he's still the saviour. He's still the king. And so we call this cross the cross of reception. And what a contrast to the other. The cross of reception. And this man was dying to sin. What a contrast. <coughs> dying to sin. And he was dying not as a sinner. He was now dying as a saint. What's a saint? A saint is a forgiven sinner. A saint is a changed sinner. And so he is dying as a saint. And my friends, the whole human race is involved here. Either we're at this cross or we're at that one. Every single one of us here today, we're either at this cross, receiving Jesus, or we're at this one. There's no other position as far as God is concerned. No other. So there we have the cross of reception, the thief dying to sin. But what then of deathbed repentance? For that's what this was, deathbed repentance. May one wait till the last hour and repent and be saved? Many believe, oh yes, all deathbed repentances will be acceptable, my friends. Scripture does not so teach. If this man's experience, if our experience is similar to this second thief, yes, maybe. Remember, this thief deeply regretted his failure. But to deliberately wait imposes on God's love and mercy. It indicates a love of sin and of self more than Christ. The blood is being used as a fire escape, doing despite to the spirit of grace. And so we have a timely warning. One of the great fathers of the Catholic Church made this statement, which was so true. He said, God gave an example of a man saved in the eleventh hour so that none might despair. But he gave only one example so that none might presume. How well 
stated. Only one example in Scripture. Only one. So that none might despair, you see, but only one. So that we will not play on the love of God. And so this is why the Scripture says, Today, while you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today, now, is the day of salvation. And this is why when God's call comes to us, that's the best time always to respond. I found through my years of evangelism, when the call of God comes to people, that's the best time, generally the easiest time. People have come to me and said, why didn't I hear this 20 years ago? The answer could be if they'd heard it 20 years ago, it would have been so tough, they might have rejected it. God brings men to the point of decision at the best time. The best time for them. And if there's anyone here this morning who has not made the decision to accept Jesus as Saviour and Lord, now is the time to accept him. Generally, I'd make an appeal, but I won't. Time's gone. But at least in your heart of hearts, surrender to him. Accept him as Saviour and King and repent and confess and give yourself to him. And you'll never regret it. God help us to do that. If we have not yet done it, if we have done it, let us continue to do it. Continue. For we'll always need the blood. Will we? Yeah, later I'll be on to this. For how long will we need the blood? Yes. So may the Lord help us to appreciate all that Jesus is as, as our Saviour, is my prayer. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, we bless Thee that Thou art the great God that Thou art. And we thank Thee that You have given us a little glimpse of Thy character, the great God who loves, of mercy and compassion. We thank Thee for the glimpse of Jesus crucified this morning. And we humble our hearts before Thee. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride, for our rebellion and our stubbornness. Help us to yield to Thee more and more as the days go by that finally we may be counted worthy of residing with thee throughout the days of eternity is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.